Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. If you look at something called the commodities markets, you look at the price of an ounce of metal. And some metals have different values. And if you look at the cost of an ounce of silver, an ounce of platinum, or an ounce of gold, you will note that they are very different. The reason I say that is some people come into your life that represent, at least to me, someone who embodies one of those elements, and that's the element of gold. And when I speak to, and I reflect on this evening's guest, he speaks in the metaphor of gold. And by that, he seeks to create value in every conversation that he has. He speaks in the metaphor of nuggets, that if you're gonna create value instead of a bar of gold, you create nuggets along the way so that when you have a bar of gold, you can sense what that is worth. And I say that because this evening's guest is named Randy Shane. And he and I came into each other's lives six or seven years ago through a mutual friend, and I'm really glad we did. Because when I think about Randy, I don't think about somebody who represents anything that you would read on a resume. In fact, he's everything that's not on a resume. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia. Randy, welcome to the studios of 77WABC. Thanks for having me, Chuck. It's great to have you here. Part of that introduction was driven when I think about you. One of the challenges, if anything, is trying to figure out what did you become for a living? Because what you ultimately ended up doing is something that not a lot of people know about. So explain to our listeners where you're from, what after Rutgers University did you decide to do? Sure. So I actually became a private investigator right out of college. Um, not at all something I would have thought that I was going to do. Uh, although uh, when I sort of reflected back later on when people used to ask me, how did you figure that out? Uh, I had read a book called What Color Is Your Parachute? Maybe people remember that. Uh, and you do all these exercises and it kind of touched on, hmm, when I was 14 years old, my uncle, who used to work for the Newark Department of Labor as an investigator, used to tell what I thought were really funny stories. Maybe it's just because I was a teenager, but I thought he was hilarious. And then at Rutgers, I, I went in and I took a couple of criminal justice courses, which I loved, and then thought, I'll be a criminal justice major. Of course, I did turn, turns out that not only didn't they have a major, they didn't even have any more classes. So that shows you preparation, the key. Uh, and then beyond that, I started thinking about gee, like, what are the kinds of things I really like to do? And a lot of what you had to do as an investigator at that time was get people on the phone and try to extract information. This was pre-big data. So a lot of the skill set was could you talk to someone on the phone and get them to tell you something? And I had been doing that for quite some time in college, too. So I thought, all right, why not give it a whirl? How did, how did you become one? So I actually answer, I, I approached, literally, <laughs> took out the Standard & Poor's book and looked up 
detective and investigative agencies in New York and New Jersey and started smiling and dialing and calling people, not through, there were no ads, anything like that. And I found a, one particular company that said, okay, you can come on in, we're not hiring. I went in and did the interview and they still said we're not hiring, but then one of the people there said, the fact that you found us and the fact that you're interested suggests that you might be good at this. <laughs> you and I had, no, right, and I had no idea what they did, right? They started talking about background due diligence and I was like, okay, fine, and I kind of, took some notes and then went home and talked to my father and he said this does sound as if you could do that right you don't know how to do it yet but they can teach you how to do it I'm sure of it and so when they offered me the job that's kind of what I said I wasn't lying I just said I've never done this before and they said no one's ever no one's that, no one's ever prepared for it when we watch television <coughs> which is often how we model the professions that of which we may be interested in when we see a private investigator they're usually either chasing someone who's having an mm -hmm. affair mm -hmm. or somebody is doing some nefarious thing mm -hmm. and they're trying to figure out how do they catch them as they are building an investigation to actually put them in jail. What did you do? Yeah, we didn't do any of that. Yeah, so, and I wonder, right, what, yeah, what, what, so, does, what did a private yeah, eye do that's so, not on television? Right, so this sort of background due diligence is essentially saying if a company is going to invest a ton of money in another company, they want to know who are the people running that other company. And so what we did was look at whatever newspaper articles there were, any corporate records, court records, and so on. And then, as I mentioned, we did a lot of interviews of people who used to know that person to try to get a sense of painting a picture of who they were and are they, therefore, a good or not good risk. And were you making that conclusion? Or we were not drawing conclusions, uh, not at all. No, the idea was you presented a report, and then they took that report with all the other information that they had gathered, and then they make that decision. And we what, weren't capable of deciding whether it was a good investment or not. And we weren't looking at any of the financials. But so. th this is an interesting point here because even myself, when I went to a hedge fund called Citadel, there was a mm -hmm. private eye that, that wanted to trace back my existence till I was 17. I didn't even know somebody was doing it until mm -hmm. they called me with a question. I said, oh my God, I don't know what they had in their report, but they hired me. What was included in your report? We would go all the way, just so you said, from college all the way through work history, and we were trying to see, have you told the truth about everything, about your titles, about your dates, about your schooling, about whether you've been sued or not, whether, uh, what has the press had to say about you, and then as I mentioned before, a lot of it also was, what are people who are your colleagues or bosses said? And these are not references, by the way. We did all what were called independent sources. So. The only time in my career that someone gave a reference that said something bad about them, I literally laughed on the phone. I couldn't help it because I thought, oh my God, I guess occasionally this does work, but it's otherwise completely useless, right? Because of course you curate your own references. Right, but now in this day and age, the era of hyper-communication and Twitter and all of those, has the business changed? Uh, it's actually gotten harder. Um, I'm now out of the business finally after, and I think for good, we'll see, mm -hmm. um, but I did it for give or take 30 years and right. I'm kind of done with it. Yeah. But I would argue it's gotten harder. The more information that's available, the more information that one has to sift through to see what's relevant. Right. And so it used to be that very little 
was you could find very little, and therefore that was a particular challenge. Now the challenge is the opposite, the exact opposite. What do you do with all of the information? How do you see what's what's important? I'd like to shift this though, because as your career evolved as a private investigator, you started your own company. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about the evolution and the challenges you faced, and the ups and the downs? Sure. So in 1993, a colleague and I, we had worked together for five, five, six years or so. We decided that we had learned all we could, and we, had a, we thought we had a better method of doing this type of work. So as 28 and 29-year-old, we set out on our own. <coughs> Excuse me. And so from 1993 till 1999, we kind of had a nice, it was a great market, and so we were getting, generating a fair amount of work, nothing extravagant, but just a nice little business. And then in 2000, we actually were on Sand Hill Road in Menlo Park, California, in, I'm not kidding, in March of 2000. Come back a week later, the tech bubble bursts. Right. While we were there, we, I think we went on nine meetings in two days with a bunch of venture capitalists, so all of whom said the same thing. Some version of people come into my office on a Monday, and they have an idea, and I've got to give them the money by Wednesday. Can you help me? Yeah, exactly. And That's the face and we make. You're, you're, and for, you know, you're for, for those of the, those right. who are listening and not viewing, my face is one of cringing. You yeah. want what? When? Right. Okay, well, all right. all right. Let me see what we can do. No, we didn't say that. Yeah. No, you we gave said, them what they wanted. No, 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 no. We didn't do that either. We, we, <laughs> what walked, did you we do? basically stood up and said, no, we can't do that. Right. We can't help you. Now, what we wanted to say was that's completely unprofessional. Right. I have no idea who's telling you that that's a possibility, but that doesn't just doesn't work like that. Right. But instead, we just said, no, we can't help you. Sorry. And left. And then we come back, and literally it was like a week or two later when the bubble burst, as I mentioned. Right. And so at that point, we had to pivot. We were in trouble since this was our client base, not the companies I just referenced, but right. still private equity companies and so on. And that whole business, from the initial public offering market to the private equity, all that went away right. overnight. And you had employees working with you? We had, we had employees. We had to really sort of think about what are we going to do. So we looked and we realized we were doing a little work examining hedge funds like Citadel. I wouldn't say whether we had covered sure. them or not. Mm -hmm. And we thought, hmm, I wonder if there's more work there. And one of the things we had already observed is we only had two clients. They're called fund of funds, the entities that invest in those companies. And yet we were already repeating the work into various hedge fund managers because at the time there weren't that many of them. So we decided to market completely to that. We just abandoned ship on everything else. And everything you, went to that. So there's a shift here. There's a refocus mm -hmm. out of necessity mm -hmm. because the, the people that you served, were no, they, were, they were gone. You switched into the sector. It wasn't yet the, the crisis. You were building your organization. Mm -hmm. What lessons were you learning besides the pivot about people and the people that you were building? Yeah, well, one of the things that I, that I saw right away was you couldn't build a business like this on your own, right? And so we started developing other managers, people who could, and we ran it according to, the teams were based on what you were doing. So there was a team that handled the verifications. There's a team that handled litigation. There's a team that handled the media and other database searches. There was a team that wrote, there was a team that edited, and then I kind of gathered all of those, and then there was sales, et And then you deliver to, <laughs> right, and all that, product to all that kind of put the product together. but. Each team worked very specifically on their task. And we believed that that system would work. People got cross-trained 
across various so you're teams. developing the depth of your Correct. People. Correct. So we were never in a situation at that moment on, we were never in a situation any longer of if one person leaves, you're doomed. Right. You don't want to put yourself in that spot. So that's, for us, that prevented that. It also helped us take younger people who had been journalists typically, but were getting disenchanted with that field, and give them a chance to do what we thought was really interesting work, and you know, it's a little bit better pay than they were getting, and also get to see the impact of what they were doing. They got a chance to see, like these reports, we don't tell clients what to do, but frequently they would tell us, or somewhat frequently, they would say, hey, look, what you just gave us helped us make our decision. And so that was, that was something that's sometimes hard to replicate in a, jo in a job. So you hired a whole lot of people mm -hmm. because your business is growing the, the, mm -hmm. in the 2000s. From 2000 to 2008, the financial business was quite good. Correct. It, was, it was profitable and it was growing until it wasn't and everything fell in half. What happened to the company at the financial in, uh, crisis and where did your transformation occur? Sure. So we had to lay off 23 of the 74 people. Um, we decided to do it all at once, putting them all in a room instead of the kind of one, uh, one at a time. We were big fans of doing HR stuff, the exact opposite of everything we read. We just perceived that to be better, right? That kind of one after another makes it seem as though you just know at that point it's not good. Everybody comes out with a glum face, so what's the point? And we told everyone very honestly, look, this is, there's nothing we can do. Either we do this or we're going out of business. Right. Because at that moment, it wasn't a matter of, gee, we just lost a bunch of clients. It was more like there are no deals happening at all for many months, and we just don't know what's going to happen. So this will allow us to, we can sort of see projection-wise. We can stay around for a little while. And then eventually, over the course of the next five or six or seven years, we ended up building right back up to that amount of people that we had had before. Um, in the interim period, I had sold the company in 2004. I stayed on because I never really wanted to leave. My business partner had wanted to kind of get out of it. And so for him, it was a chance to exit. And for me, it was a chance to take some of the chips off the table, as people say, but more importantly than to just continue. So we kind of just grew right back to where we were. Um, the hardest part, of course, was that that initial ripping the Band-Aid off, as people say, was brutal. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. I know how difficult that is. But to you, all of a sudden, there was a transition that was occurring in your life, whether you knew you were mm -hmm. in that transition or not. It's an interesting one that leads you up to where you are today. Sure. Talk about that, because sure. I think that is the critical juncture of who you are as I know you. Sure. So I think that occurred a little bit later. It was around 2014, 2015. I started sensing, boy, I'm not really something up here. Like, what is it? It's not just that I've, because I told the company a long time before that I had been through multiple iterations and so on. It wasn't that. It was that I realized suddenly I'm not helping the younger people. We now have grown to the point when I'm working solely with that group of managers that I alluded to earlier, and I'm not, some of these people, I don't even know who they are. Right. And that wasn't really that appealing to me. And it kind of occurred to me, boy, there's got to be a way for me to work with young people again. And literally at that moment, as I'm going through this in my head, um, a woman from Rutgers, where I had gone to school, contacted me and asked if I'd be interested in this mentorship program. I never really 
heard the word even, much less knew what she was talking about. But I asked her to describe it. She told me, and I said, are you sure you're not coming in to hit me up for money? Because that's not going to happen. She assured me she wasn't. She came in. I think I mentioned this. She then tried to unsell herself because I was sold immediately. I said, just tell me what it is. She told me. I said, okay, I'll do it. And I guess she's so not used to that that she continued with the pitch, and then I just gave her the hand. I said, no, no, we're good. If you keep talking, I might change my mind. I'm good. You're listening to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia, and my guest this evening is Randy Shane. Randy, it's interesting how a phone call that you perceived, I'm going to write a check, but maybe you can contribute in a different way. Why did it even matter to you? You had built up this company. You had run it. You've made some money. Their chips are off the table. Was there a missing element here? What drove this? Yeah, I think it mattered to me then the same reason it matters to me now, right? It's the thing that I find myself feeling the most productive and uh, engaged is when I'm working with younger people, trying to help them deal with stuff that no one else is talking to them about. Mm. And so today what I do is I still mentor 25 kids um, most of that is as a strict volunteer. Um, and what I notice is that most of the advice that they're getting is a lot of what to do, not how to do it, and not why they should do it. Let's examine that. What are, they, what are you hearing from them as to what they are told to do? I would say the sad part is, is that parents... So kids are getting their advice from one of two sources, either parents or from their career services department of their schools. So parents, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, aren't 99% of the time, maybe even 100, have their child's best interests at heart. They want them to do well. However, most of them haven't hired a bunch, they haven't hired people. They haven't hired, they haven't fired, they haven't trained, they haven't done any of that. They haven't even interviewed people. So when you ask a kid, well, who has your mom and dad interviewed before when they're giving you interview advice, and the answer is no one, I mean, how do they know, right? It's hard for me to teach something if I've never done it at all. Right. And so that's part of it. And then the second part of it is that when they go to school and they get into school and they go to career services, career services is, has typically, it's not necessarily their fault. They're staffed. They might have three or four people for 1,000, 2,000 people. So it's a ratio of 500 to 1,000 to 1. How can they possibly know anything other than generic advice? Mm -hmm. So I, what I try to express to people is the, uh, to the younger people is, let's start with what do you like to do so far? What are the things that in any job, in any, you know, whether you're a pizza delivery man or whatever, or in any class you took, what are the things so far that you've liked? You're not telling them anything. It. You're just asking questions. Correct. Yeah. A lot of questions. And you're using it as a basis to give them good advice on what they could do, but then you switch to how they should do it? Yes, then the how-to is the big part. The how-to is really, okay, now I'm going to give you from experience what you sound like mm -hmm. when you go to do something. So even the hard skill of how to interview, that's what people always want to hear, job, 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 right? But I literally was speaking with someone today, great, took it really well. And one of the things we talked about was just the idea of if you want to sound authentic, you got to tell your stories. No one's really interested in all of the word salad, right? Like, it's not memorable. Sure, you sound professional, but so what? Like but there's no not a high school class that says how to tell your story. 
There's not no. a college class that's entitled how to tell your story. No. It's geometry and biology and anthropology, and Correct. no offense to them, but it sounds like you're taking a different approach here. Yeah, my approach is I don't care what you major in. I don't care where you went to school, and I don't really care what your grades were. It's nice if you got good grades, if that's important to you as a person, but there's nothing. Don't do anything for your resume. That's not a thing. Do everything for yourself. When you do it for yourself and then you do for others, you will find that all of a sudden you realize, hmm, when someone asks you, why were you in that club? Why were you the vice president of you know, the particular club you were in? And you say, oh, I did it for my resume. What do you think the person thinks? Right. They're not positive at that point. You may as well, you're better off if you said nothing. Right. So to me, is don't. it's no longer the thing and this is what no one talks about is through middle school and high school, it's grades, 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 try to cure cancer, et cetera, get yourself into the best school possible. Mm -hmm. And it works. It does work or else people wouldn't do it. They wouldn't get tutors for their ACTs. They wouldn't get soccer lessons and piano lessons and everything else if it didn't work. It does work. But then when you get into college and you're dropped off and you're suddenly told, all right, do it all on your own and figure it out. We're going to spend $300,000 on your education. We just dumped $50,000 into getting you in, but we're not going to spend a cent or any kind of advice on what to do to maximize. Well, then what do you think is going to, it's a predictable result that kids end up on the couch right. and or just disappointed in their work where they get done and they're kind of, they have no idea what they want to do and no idea, even if they did, how to accomplish that. And that's sad to me. And I feel like you can fix that the more you reach people. You are far away from the world of private investigations. Yeah, right? well, yeah, that's sure. <laughs> it's that's something sure. different. And something else happened along the path of your transformation I want to share with your, your listeners. I received a phone call from you. I, I don't know if it was three or four years ago. I don't even remember the date. And you asked me to write an introduction to a book that you were writing. And I was, I didn't even know what it was about. I, I figured it was about the mentoring. I was just so honored that you asked me and I was so so uh, glad to be able to contribute in my little way what it is I could do to introduce you. And then I read the book, and I loved the book because you were saying all of the things that often I say to my college students, but no one else is saying to them. It was honest, it was open, and it was both strategic and tactical. And I think my humble opinion, anybody who is considering going to college should read it. But I'd like you to describe it. Tell the title, why you wrote it, and how it aided in your transformation. Sure. So it's 173 pages every college student must read. There's no significance to the 173 page number. Except that's there just is what 173 it, that's pages. Just what I think it, I added right, a few in my introduction. Yeah, that's just what it turned <laughs> out to be. Uh, and so I wrote it because I found that I was saying the same things over and over again. I started to sense, hmm, if I put this down on paper, then I can reach more people. It doesn't just have to be the 20-odd people that I'm currently working with. Why shouldn't other people have the advantage of having some of this information? The other piece to me is I live in an area where there's a tremendous amount of stress for people to get into the perfect college, and if you don't get in, your life is over. Mm -hmm. uh, my older son did not get into Yale. He's going to kill me when I announce this on this radio program, but he had the perfect ACT, he had the perfect grades, he spoke French already, and is a wonderful person, didn't get in. And we, he was okay with it. It took a moment, but he was okay. 
ended up at Georgetown, did amazing. It's not like he, he, he went to school in a prison, you know? Like, there's plenty of other places. The alternative wasn't bad. Right. The alternative was amazing. Right? Maybe the prison example is a little too harsh. <laughs> so uh, what I try to express to people is it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. So in the book, the book is literally organized by chapter based on your life. So it's fresh before freshman year, here's some things I want you to think about. Freshman year to sophomore year, et cetera, here's some things to do. In fact, one of the things I would point out is freshman and sophomore year summers, I say forget about the internship thing. It's just not a thing for most of you. And I'm really referring mostly to humanities majors, right? I, I would caution that I'm not talking about pre-med or even STEM. It's mm -hmm. mostly the humanities, the philosophy, the history, the English, sociology, uh, whatever. Well, what do you tell them to do in those years? Get a job. Right. Just a job. Right. Get a job. So who, who, who are the best workers I've ever had? And who are the best workers every other entrepreneur I've ever spoken with has ever had? People who've worked. Right. right. Not a job your uncle got you to look good on a resume and you sat around all day. For, the, for eight weeks in the summer. That's not a thing. There's no upside to that. And in fact, that person's not doing you a favor at all. Because again, when I ask you about that as an interviewer, I put the interviewer hat on, and that's how you explain it. Now I just think you sound entitled, which is exactly how people want to judge people of this generation. Yeah. Right? In the time that we have remaining, and God knows this meeting is flying, Randy, we ask ourselves on this show, with every show, the one common thread what do we want our listeners to think, feel, and do with the information and the insights that you provide both in your book and throughout the course of your climb? What do you want others, and not just the college students and the parents, but anyone who is climbing in their career, mm -hmm. what do you want them to think about their prospects? Yeah, so I look and think that if you can develop three things in any job, you're good. Skills, impact, and relationships. So skills, can you write, can you speak, can you network, which means can you deal with other people, can you work on a team of people that are not like you, mm -hmm. different ages, different genders, different uh, sexuality, et cetera, um, and critical thinking. Those are the skills that you have to have. So if you develop those on a job, they're transferable. Right. Right? So transferable just means I take them with me. I'm not saying you go into the job announcing to your employer, hey, I'm looking to develop skills and so I can bolt in two years. But if that is what happens, every job you leave, you bring something to the next place. The impact, every millennial certainly wants to have an impact. That's a good thing. I hate when people say, oh, that's bad. They want to have an impact. What, I want them to be purposeless? Makes no sense to well, me. Well, let's segue that to what do you want them to feel about joining this work world that we all do? I want them to think that you can and should have a purpose. You should. You should. You should. You should think, I want to do this job, and I want to see what the impact is on the company, on the world, etc. I'm not saying you have to. It's not, not every job is saving the environment, although, quite honestly, there should be more of those. But every job should. You should feel like you're doing something. You're accomplishing something. It's up to the company to teach you that, the managers to tell you that. If they're not doing that, that might not be a place for you. And that gets to the do. They're out there now and they're doing something. What do you want them all to do with themselves? I want people to understand that when they take a job, the goal is to do what I just said before, develop those skills, make that impact, and develop their relationships. And then when you feel like you've learned, you can't learn anything more, then move on.
not before. And we're going to end with those. So you have tuned into a climb to the top stories of transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia. My guest this evening is my dear friend, Randy Shane. Randy, thank you so much for your insights and your contribution for coming into the studio. You're welcome. And thanks again for having me. And good night. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.